Well, good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much just for bringing us to this moment where we can study your word. Uh, Lord, we know that there are going to be believers all around this world today who will be meeting in secrecy, with doors locked and blinds closed. And uh, Father, we just pray that we will never take the freedoms that we have in this country for granted. Lord, we pray that when we have opportunities to study your word, that we will do it and that we'll be intentionally focused on bringing you the glory and honor that you deserve. So, Father, as we do that this morning, we pray that your name will be held high in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to be with you today. I'm always grateful for every opportunity that I have to stand before you and preach. Uh, In case you are new to Northside or maybe even visiting with us for the very first time, uh, we are glad to have you. And let me just quickly introduce myself. My name is Reed, and I'm the Minister of Education and Students here. Pastor Scott, who normally preaches for us, is out of town. Uh, He turns 40 this month. In fact, I think tomorrow is his birthday, and so his family has taken him away on a short vacation to celebrate. So you're stuck with the second string, but that's good news for you, because not only am I going to get us out at a decent time today, uh, (laughs) but you don't have to worry about me using all those big fancy words that he uses every Sunday, so... Don't worry, I grew up in the great state of Georgia where our public school system ranked 53rd out of 50. And uh, I'm pretty sure that Guam and Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands outranked us. So, um, But I do hope that you brought your Bible with you today. Uh, we are going to be looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to be looking at the story where Jesus turned water into wine. So if you will... Uh, Please join me in John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you should be within arm's reach of a pew Bible. We're going to be on page 751 on our pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, let me encourage you just to take that Bible home with you. Uh, Just consider that to be a gift from our church to your family. Uh, We just want to make sure that every single family that is a part of our church has a Bible at home. Uh, Today, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, so for those of you with an iPhone or for Frankie with his droid, uh, feel free to open up your Bible app and uh, go ahead and switch it over to the NIV. That'll definitely make it easy for you to follow along this morning. All right, this is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Inside your bulletin, you're going to have an outline for today's sermon. Uh, You'll see some fill-in-the-blanks that will kind of help you follow along this morning. Uh, My goal this morning is just to answer a very simple question for us. Why did Jesus turn water into wine? I mean, we know from Scripture that he did it, 
But my question for us that I hope to answer is why? What was the purpose? And as we wrestle with this question, I hope to show you three important truths about our Lord and Savior. So let's just jump right into to point number one. This is our first point this morning. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see that he is able to meet their needs. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see that he is able to meet their needs. All right, let's look back at the beginning of our passage. This is uh, verses 1 through 3. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus, said to his, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. All right, well, let's begin with that very first sentence, on the third day. On the third day of what? Well, in order for us to know what's going on right here, we actually have to rewind back to John chapter 1. Uh, so you don't have to do that. Let me just tell you what's going on. In John chapter 1, uh, there's several things that take place. One, John the Baptist is questioned as to whether or not he's the Messiah. And, of course, he denies that he says, I'm not the one. I'm the one who comes before the Messiah. And then we see him later. He's talking about when he baptized Jesus, and he talks about when he saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove from heaven. Uh, and then we see Jesus going around the region, and he's, and he's gathering his disciples. He's saying, come and follow me. And then uh, we get to this point. So now, as we know, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, um, and it's believed that at this uh, kind of in the same region is where he was gathering his disciples. So for him to show up in Cana of Galilee, this would have actually taken several days to make this journey. So what, when it says on the third day, we kind of have to understand that as the third day of his journey. So maybe we need to read this passage as saying, so on the third day of their trip, a wedding took place. And Jesus and his disciples, they made it in time for the wedding ceremony and the celebration. So here we have this wedding going on. The ceremony's over, and the party has begun. However, at the reception, pretty early on, there seems to be a problem. They've run out of wine. Now, you can clearly see that this is not a Southern Baptist wedding. Uh, if it was a Southern Baptist wedding, we'd be serving Dr. Pepper or Coke. Uh, but it is what it is. And as we see in the text, there are some familiar people at this wedding. Jesus' mother is there, Jesus himself is there, and Jesus' disciples are there. So even though our text this morning does not specifically Say this, we know from historical writings from this time in history that weddings were a very, very big deal. Now, I know that weddings are a big deal in our culture as well. Uh, according to a report from CNN, the average cost of a wedding in America is close to $28,000. Uh, so that's a big deal, I get it. But compared to Jesus' time in history, uh, weddings were actually a much bigger deal. For example, let me just give you an example. Southern Baptists, we pride ourselves in how short our wedding ceremonies can be. I found this out firsthand uh, the hard way a few years ago when me and Sarah attended a Catholic wedding, and uh, we were quickly reminded of how great it is to be a Southern Baptist because this wedding just went on and on and on, right? So, I mean, you know this, a Southern Baptist, the average wedding ceremony lasts about 30 minutes. That usually gives enough time for a PowerPoint slideshow of the couple when they were dating. You know, they're doing goofy faces, and they're putting it on the slideshow that just keeps going. That usually gives enough time for a bridesmaid to sing a solo, and then you have enough time for the wedding vows. And then you can usually expect the reception to last about two to two and a half hours, depending on how good the DJ is, whether or not you're serving finger foods or a full meal. So for the average person who attends a Southern Baptist wedding, they can usually expect to spend probably about three hours of their day to watch some of their friends get married. Now, this is not how a wedding was celebrated, though, during Jesus' time in history, and especially in the Jewish culture. 
it wasn't just a celebration that lasted for a few hours. It was a celebration that lasted for several days. And you have to remember that at this point in history, the world was not connected the way it is right now. There was no internet. There was no global economy that kind of held everything together and kept life flowing. Uh, Instead, everything was very localized. So when someone got married, the entire town was usually involved. And most likely, uh, most of the town was invited and attended. So to run out of wine during the celebration was not a good thing. And notice, as it appears from our scripture, they ran out on the first day of their celebration. This would be tremendously embarrassing for the couple. And not just them, but for their families as well. Uh, This is not how you would want your marriage to begin. People would remember this for a very long time, and you would forever be the couple that did not supply the needs of your guests. So what happens? Jesus' mother comes to him, and she asks him to do something. Um, Look at what she says in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, if you're not careful right here, it is very easy to read this passage and think, man, Jesus is a jerk to his mother. Uh, But let me quickly show you that this is not true. I want you to take a look at the screen. I've done this illustration with the students before, uh, so I'm going to do it with you as well, so students don't participate. Uh, Here we have three simple words. Women can fish. I want you to take a a second. I want you to think about that phrase. All right. Who in here thinks that this means that women can go fishing? Raise your hand. Nobody? Come on. Okay, hands are going up. This means women can go fishing. Now, what if I told you that you would be wrong, though, if that's what you thought? What if instead, even though it can be translated that way, what if I told you that I actually wanted you to interpret this, that women are putting fish into cans? They're canning fish, okay? Now, how would you have known that? You would not have known that unless you understood the context, because context is king. Uh, So you have to hear more than just these three words to know that. Well, the same is true in this passage. In the Greek, there are two ways of translating Jesus' reply. When Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Option number one is, woman, you have no authority over me, so back off and don't involve me in this. That's one way. Or the second way uh, is, dear woman, said in a very loving and respectful way, what business of that is ours? Now, you see, the first way makes Jesus sound like a complete jerk, and the second way doesn't. So we know that Jesus would never be outright defiant and disrespectful to his mother. So even though it can be translated two different ways, we need to go with that second option because it fits fits the context of our situation and it fits the character of Jesus. So let's read verse 4 again with this in mind. Woman, why do you involve me? Or, dear woman, what business of that is ours? My hour has not yet come. Now, this phrase, my hour has not yet come, has also caused a lot of people to kind of question, well, what does he mean by that? You know, when you kind of read it through just the first time, you know, you're just kind of just just skimming through it. Uh, It's very easy to interpret it this way. Woman, why do you involve me in that? It's not time for me to start my ministry, right? That's a very, uh, very easy interpretation to kind of come to, which let's be honest though, if this is the case, it really makes Jesus kind of look like a schizophrenic or maybe disorganized at best because he immediately goes on to turn the water into wine. So why would he do that if it was not time for him to start his ministry? He says, woman, it's not time for me to start my ministry. I'll start my ministry. Like it doesn't make any sense. 
Uh, so, but that is one way of translating. Or the second is, woman, why do you involve me? It's not time for me to accomplish what the Father has sent me here to accomplish. Now, let me read you just a couple of verses that kind of have the same language in it, and then we can talk a little bit more, and then I'm going to give you my opinion. John chapter 7, verse 30. As they tried to seize him, or at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. John 12, 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then finally, John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So as you can see from these verses, when Jesus speaks of his hour, he's speaking of his death and resurrection. He's speaking of the very thing that that the Father has sent him to do. So what he's saying is, dear woman, what business of that is ours? It's not time for me to die. But even though he wasn't going to die right then, he decided that he would go ahead and give them a sign. And the way he decided to do that, the sign he decided to give them, was that he decided to turn water into wine. And by accomplishing this, by doing this, he was able to tell people around him that he is capable of meeting their needs. Let's keep reading. This is verses 5 through 10. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is your second point. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see that he is able to purify something that is not clean. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see that he is able to purify something that is not clean. All right, so Mary goes over to these, to these people that are working at the wedding. And she tells them, listen, we know you're out of wine. Have you met my son Jesus? Just so you know, by the way, he's the son of God. Let me go ahead and introduce you real quick because you need to know who he is. I've asked him to come over here and help you. So just do what he says and I promise that everything is going to work out just fine. So then Jesus tells the servants to go grab these large stone water jars that the Jews used for ceremonial washings. Now let me ask you, have you ever wondered why Jesus asked the people to go grab the stone water jars to perform this miracle? I have. I mean, clearly at one point, they were drinking wine at this wedding. So there would be either wine barrels, wine skins, wine bottles. There would be something that held the wine that was at this party, and now these things are empty. So why didn't he just tell the servants, hey, go grab the empty wine containers and bring them back to me? Well, let me tell you why. I think this is pretty neat. 
During this time in history, and especially in the Jewish culture, it was expected that each guest would wash their hands uh, before they would eat. Now, we do the same thing, but we do it for different reasons. We live in a culture that's completely freaked out by germs. Uh, They did it for a different reason. Look back at the text. Verse 6 tells us that these stone water jars were used for ceremonial washing. So even if their hands were clean, they were still expected to do this to be true to the ceremonial rules. So if you're throwing a two- to three-day party for your whole town, and you're expecting a lot of people to be there, and everybody needs to wash their hands before they eat in order to be true to these ceremonial rules, then you're obviously going to need a considerable amount of water. So according to our text, there were six stone water jars that each held anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons each. So combined, if we add all that up, if we do the math real quick, that gives us anywhere from on the low end 120 gallons of water to the high end about 180 gallons of water. So that's kind of our our range to work with. And if the entire town has been dipping their hands in this water, then you know it's not clean. They're not doing this for the purpose of cleaning their hands. Remember, they're doing this for ceremonial reasons. So uh, it would not take long for this water to be pretty gross. Let's be honest. If we had just one of those water jars with us this morning, and let's just say I set it up right here on the stage, and I asked all of you to come by one by one, just form a long line and come through and and, and wash your hands for this new ceremony that we start at Northside Baptist Church, uh, you would all hop up and you would race to the front of the line because you don't know where everybody's hands have been. And so you don't want to be at the back of the line, especially when there's probably not soap involved. This is just a ceremony. you know. It's just kind of something that you do just to kind of fit the ceremony rules. Now here's the cool part. By using these stone water jars, Jesus actually accomplishes two things. Uh, First, by using the six water jars, he supplies this couple with enough wine to last for the entire duration of the party. And this, this goes back to our first point that says he's capable of meeting their needs. Let me show you this. Uh, let's do some math together. I know, that, uh, I know that people often accuse pastors of exaggerating facts just for their sermon. Uh, so I've got these numbers for us in my PowerPoint. So we're going to put these up on the screen. There they are. There are 16 cups in a gallon. And each cup is 8 ounces. So if we multiply 16 times 8, that will tell us how many ounces are in one gallon of water. So we come to 128 ounces per gallon of water. Now if we divide that by 4, that will tell us how many 4 ounce glasses of wine we can get from one gallon. So we take 128, we divide it by 4, we can get 32 four ounce glasses of wine from one gallon. Now, if we stick with the lower estimate of 120 gallons, and we multiply that by the number per gallon, uh, that's 120 times 32, that gives us close to 3,800 glasses of wine, the four ounce glasses of wine. And if we go with the higher number of 180 gallons of water that have been turned into wine, that would give them about 5,700 four ounce glasses of wine. And that's assuming that it has not been diluted. Now, at this time in history, it was very common to dilute wine. Historical records tell us that it was common to dilute wine by three parts water to one part wine. So for every four ounce glass of wine, you've only got one ounce of wine and then three ounces of water mixed in with it to dilute it. So if we do the math with that, we can actually multiply our numbers by four. Check this out. This is, this is, a, this is, a, lot of, uh, this is a lot of wine right here. 120 gallons would give them over 15,000 four ounce glasses of wine if it's diluted. And 180 gallons of water would give them over 23,000 four-ounce glasses of wine. So what's the point? The point is that Jesus has supplied them with a tremendous amount of wine. Okay, This will definitely be enough for a two- to three-day party. 
Definitely. Now, if you want to know my opinion, I don't believe that the wine was diluted. Take a look at uh, what happens with the master of the banquet. This is verses 9 through 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But listen, but you have saved the best till now. Basically, the master of the banquet, who's kind of maybe their version of a wedding planner, that's probably the best way for you to understand that this morning. He tasted this wine. He didn't know where it had come from. He goes over to the groom and he says, Whoa, where did this come from? This wine is incredible. Usually people serve this stuff first, and after everybody's had way too much to drink and can't tell the difference anymore, then they bring out the cheap, diluted stuff, but you have saved the best till now. So that's one reason why I think that. Uh, but also, uh, just on a spiritual level, if you look at verse 11 in our text, you see that this was done to display the glory of Jesus. I can't imagine that this wine would be diluted just on a spiritual level because then what would that say about Jesus' glory? It would say that the glory of Jesus is watered down too. But that's just my opinion. Either way, one thing that was cool about Jesus using the water jars is that it definitely provided this couple with enough wine for their party. But second, guys, and this is really cool. In fact, this is probably even the highlight of today's sermon. So I want you to really kind of pay attention to this. Not only can he meet your needs, but he can take something that is not clean and he can purify it. How awesome is that? Does he not do the exact same thing in our lives? Does he not take us with filthy, dirty hearts And does he not purify us and make us new again? Right here in this simple decision to use these dirty water jars, we see this amazing picture of the gospel. And you know that that's cool. I hope that every time that you read this passage or hear it preached from now on, I hope that you are going to see and hear the gospel proclaimed right there. But this is not the end of the story. Let's keep reading. This is verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. All right, this is your third and final point. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see his glory and believe in him. Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see his glory and believe in him. All right, this one verse right here tells us several things. Not only do we know that this was the first miracle that he performed, which is kind of how he kick-started his ministry, but we also see that this is when his disciples actually began to believe that he was who he said he was. I mean, up to this point, they knew who he claimed to be. That's why they started following with him when he was going around gathering his disciples. But now they believed that it was true. Take a look at John chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. This is when Jesus is still gathering his disciples, and they've just made the decision to to move on to Galilee. So uh, John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. They're heading to this wedding. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Nazareth, are you kidding me? 
You're going to try to tell me that you found the Savior of the world and he's in Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Is this some sort of joke? You want me to just to pack up all my stuff and just go with you to follow this guy that we've never even heard of who's from Nazareth? And Philip's like, yeah, let's go check it out. Let's come and see. And it didn't take long for Nathaniel to see, did he? Like I said, they knew who he claimed to be, but now they believed in him. And by the way, in case you're wondering who Nathaniel is, uh, he is one of the 12 disciples. It was common for somebody back in the day to have uh, two different names. Uh, many scholars believe that Nathaniel is the same person as Bartholomew, and other scholars believe that it's Matthew. It really doesn't matter for our text this morning. I just didn't want you to wonder who he was. Uh, all you really need to know is that the disciples were anxious to see if Jesus was who he claimed to be, and they got the proof they needed and the proof that they wanted when he turned the water into wine. But here's something else that is really neat. This is not the only wedding that Jesus is a part of in Scripture. You see, in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And uh, as you know, no couple plans on staying engaged for eternity, right? Marriage is always the end goal. Uh, And as we see at the end of the Bible, there is another wedding, but this time it is Christ marrying his bride, the church, and uh, it's described for us right here in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Here's what it says. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, these are the true words of God. And then two chapters later in Revelation 21 verse 9, here's what it says. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. By the time we get to the end of Revelation, she's no longer just a bride. She is now the wife. Isn't that cool? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a wedding. And at the end of the story, there's a wedding. The question is, will you be there? Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I've got great news for you today. You are invited. There's a Christian band from Canada called the City Harmonic, uh, and they have a song with great lyrics that talk about when Jesus marries his bride. I posted this on Facebook uh, yesterday so that you guys could jump in there and and see this song, Uh, but I want to read the lyrics to you. I think it is a a very um, powerful uh, song, especially relating to our our passage this morning. here's Here's what the song says. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me. But it ends with a bride and groom and a wedding by a glassy sea. O death, where is your sting? Because I'll be there singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is the story of a bride in white waiting on her wedding day. Anticipation welling up inside while her groom is crowned a king. O death, where is your sting? Because we'll be there singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me, and it ends with a bride and groom and a wedding by a glassy sea. This is the story of a bride in white singing on her wedding day. Altogether, all that was and is can stand before her God and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Church, I hope that today you have a better understanding of this great story in the Gospel of John. My goal this morning was to help us understand three important truths about our Lord and Savior. And we wanted to do that by looking at the question of why did Jesus turn water into wine. And so this morning, this is what we saw. We saw that Jesus turned water into wine so that people could see that he is able to meet their needs, so that people could see that he's able to purify something that is not clean, praise the Lord. And then number three, so that people could see his glory and believe in him. So let me ask you, do you believe that he can meet your needs? Do you believe that he can purify you and your unclean heart? And finally, if you are an unbeliever in the room today, are you ready to believe in him like the disciples did on this day? We are at the uh, part of our service where we have an opportunity to respond to God's word. As Will comes forward and the musicians begin to play, uh, let, me got, let me just encourage you just to respond uh, however the Holy Spirit leads. Uh, the altar is going to be open if you'd like to come and pray. And we'll have pastors available down front if you need to speak to somebody. Let's stand and sing.